Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles producer Trent here. On today's episode, Robin and Josie are talking to the author Pragya Agrawal about her new book, Motherhood. Uh, You might remember Pragya from uh, last year when we did the Stay at Home Festival. Uh, She was one of our guests on that. So delighted to have her back on Book Shambles this time. Thanks as always to our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to subscribe. You'll get extended episodes of Book Shambles each week. Bonus series like Tips for Existence, who uh, our recent guest on that is A.L. Kennedy. And coming up on the next episode is David Bedil. Your support on Patreon really helps us out and means we can keep making the podcast and uh, the Sunday Science Show and the blogs and everything else that we do at Cosmic Shambles as we are coming up on... 18 months now without being able to do tours and live shows and all the stuff that we used to do. If you can't support us on Patreon, that's fine. There will always be uh, this shorter version available for free on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. But if you are listening to it on one of those two platforms, it really helps us out. If you go and give us a five-star rating and a review on there, that would be greatly appreciated. And without any further ado, let's get on to today's episode. Hope you enjoy Hello, welcome to Josie and Robbie's Book Shambles. We haven't done one of those intros for a while, I almost forgot how it works. Um, How are you Josie? I'm very well, thank you. I am looking out on beautiful sunny Glasgow. We've had a real summer this week and it's absolutely stunning. I tell you what, the sunlight coming off the sandstone. Mm, Heaven. Anyway, we have a guest who's been on the show uh, before last time was to talk about uh, her book Sway, which is a fantastic uh, book all about uh, our unconscious bias. And her new book, this is one of those tricky ones because sometimes with parentheses in a single word, you're not quite sure whether one of the letters becomes entirely hidden or not. Uh, Her new book is Otherhood. I would Uh, call it Motherhood Otherhood. Oh, Motherhood Otherhood. I'd call it. That is nice because that has the star of somewhere between kind of a Doctor's use or an Edward Lear, I think, motherhood, uh, otherhood. Um, it is uh, Pragya Agarwal and uh, otherhood or motherhood, otherhood. Um, is it out yet? Has it? Yes, it... it came out at the start of June. Fantastic. Because that's the thing that I don't know. Because I don't go out now, I have no idea because I don't walk into a bookshop and I don't see things on the table. And you have so many. I mean, the people on uh, the number of people who who recommend this book are are so Carrie Ad Lloyd, who is absolutely wonderful. And uh, Laura Bates, who we had on a while ago with with her uh, most recent book, um, which is uh, Men Who Hate Women, which Mm -hmm. is a really fantastic book. Yeah, I just did a hair festival with her. It was great to meet her. Yeah, hair festival session with her and uh, Caitlin and... I want to start off by asking about, because this is more than Sway, this is uh, an overtly personal book, as well as Mm. being about about your your experiences going then into much broader kind of issues with culture. But the starting point is, and you say this in the opening, that you are a private person. So I imagine this was 
very hard book to write because there's a lot of things you deal with here which are are certainly seen by by society as a whole as very private things as hidden mm -hmm. things things about whether it's menstruation things about pregnancy which aren't normally overtly spoken about you know on daytime television and on the rest of television yeah it was a hard book to write and uh, yes unbelievably people don't believe it that i am quite shy and and private <laughs> but but i then um actually once I started writing it, it all just came out and I did edit it back. It wasn't supposed to be a therapy session while writing the book. <laughs> but but I also realized that if you don't talk about it, how can I ask people to talk about it if I don't talk about it myself? If I carry this internalized shame or fear of sharing my stories. And I was also using my own stories, my own experience as a stepping stone because I can't talk about a universal experience of something which is quite personal and intimate in itself, motherhood, mothering, or being a woman or identity. If I don't make it clear what my lens is, because I wanted to talk, say, this is my lens, this is where I'm coming from. So I'm using that as a stepping stone to talk about the broader social, political, universal constructs of this mm -hmm. concept. And it makes so much sense because you want to go against the feeling that as the writer of the book, you are, of course, sat in the objective position. And that, of course, you know, I, I feel like it's so important to kind of show plurality of experience and, and sort of show different viewpoints on these things that are so like underexplored and underappreciated. Yeah, I was hoping that I was hoping that. I could bring a perspective that's not often seen, even in motherhood memoirs or motherhood books, there's a standard kind of a normative experience that we see more often in mainstream media and publishing. And I wanted to talk about the intersectional inclusive element of it, but I wanted to make it clear that this is my position. I speak from a cisgender heterosexual woman. I, I am talking from an intersectional perspective, but I don't want to be the voice of a community that I don't belong to because if I take away their voice, then they don't even have the platform to speak about these things if they want to. But I want to open up the conversation through this, say that actually we have to bring in the intersectional element because even an intimate universal experience like motherhood or an identity as a woman is so shaped by our social, cultural and environmental context. I thought that was it was very interesting quite early in the book you talk I I I forget his name you talk about a, a, a trans man and the issues in uh teenage years in terms of menstruation and 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 you know to have such a clash of of what you 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 see yourself as and then to have this 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 physical side of it which which is is you know it's almost pouring scorn mm. on on you and 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 that I I found a very interesting you know it's something again which doesn't get talked about and also i suppose because one of the other things is with all the conversations about uh tra i say conversations some of them are not conversations that some of the incredible ag aggression out there about trans issues is trans men almost well, don't seem to exist in the conversation so often and erased because they're inconvenient to the people yeah. who want to be um prejudiced against trans women they yeah. don't fit into their narratives yeah yeah that's what i'm really surprised about as well the focus with on trans women and the identities of, of womanhood is talked about but yes how how are we not talking about trans men in this discussion yeah, that is and and as you said robin also that that experience was really touching and moving to me as well because i talk about obviously the stigma we face as women and and how we have to hide our bodies and i was thinking about all the gender dysphoria that arises from a person who's who's it's their identity is so 
muddled up in what their body is going through. And I, I was it was a really touching and moving thing for me as well to read about it and think about it. But I think also to talk about these things helps us, us as cisgender people too. It doesn't mm. divide us because mm. we all understand those feelings of shame or secrecy or feeling like what's happening to you isn't allowed to be discussed. And so it helps us to go, wow, your experience is different to mine, but I, I can sympathize and understand. Like, I think, yeah, only like it can only serve us to be inclusive in that way. Yeah, I hope so. And I, that's that's the hope. And I, I'm surprised when that doesn't happen, because when you are fe used to feeling marginalized or used to be feeling like you are not dismissed or erased, then how can you not understand other people who are being dismissed and erased as well in the society who are being marginalized, who are on the fringes, who are not mainstream? We should be empathetic to those experiences and think about how does it feel, mm. you know, and actually that should bridge the gap, really. I was interested in it. I mean, you talk about how much is kind of concealed and how much you just, I mean, at one point you say that you realised how little you knew your own body, you know, attached to some of the kind of biology lessons that were, you said in a you know, very embarrassed kind of biology lesson with these, you know, t little pencil sketches of that's inside you and let's not worry about that now and that's where the eggs come from. And uh, and I thought that, you know, the idea of not knowing your, your body, of being brought, and then so each change you know whether it's the, the, your your first period for for a lot of people as well you know the 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 onset of menopause and some of the things people are just not expecting at all and and um but that really in interested me that bit of your realization and at what point you have that realization i think it's happened gradually over the years and even now i sometimes think i read something and i think i didn't know that actually and how did i not know that I come to this period in, of my life and I have gone through so much very intimately associated with my body, all the infertility treatments and everything. And still, I didn't know what was happening with my body because you're not giving given enough information. It's almost like you're kept ignorant because that is that is a way that oppression works sometimes, because if you're kept ignorant, then you don't have the right to stand up and demand things or ask for things. And we know that healthcare and medical bias exists, that women's pain and is ignored, women's diseases is ignored. It is intricately, inherently linked to the sex education and the gendered language that's used in biology and medical textbooks, which I talk about in the book, which I found really fascinating. And I've been doing more and more research about it and more kind of uh, finding out more about what's going on, about how this sets up all those gender stereotypes about how we, our bodies are just passive and waiting for somebody to come and rescue us and somebody to come and and mm -hmm. and and give us permission to do things while it's not the case actually scientifically speaking and so i was so intrigued about how language is rooted in society in these societal stereotypes but then it reinforces these stereotypes in return and and it also creates eraser it also creates shame it also creates heteronormativity in the way biology and, and sex education is talked about. It also creates stigma and bias and prejudice. And, and it, it just kind of perpetuates the cycle all the time. And I'm just surprised we don't talk about it more often. Well, I think it's shocking because you can feel as if you understand the extent of it 
if you think of, you know, well, it's the same as so many things. If you think, well, I'm a progressive person and I deeply care about not falling into these traps, so I assume that I'm doing pretty well. And then it's one of these things that you scratch and you scratch and the more you uncover, the more you realise how little has been effectively moved on from, you know, from things that are so completely outmoded and completely incorrect that, like, I think it can feel a bit overwhelming at times. It does feel overwhelming, but I, I think, yes, I mean, in, in some way, changes happen because we're talking about it more. Um, but that sometimes, like you, I worry, do we just talk about it and do we not actually change anything because the people who are supposed to create change are not getting informed or not getting the right message or not think that it's a priority? Is it because in some ways the people who are making policies, these, these things don't affect them? Um, so again, it's rooted in this kind of patriarchal structure or, or kind of gender inequality because people who are making decisions or making policies, they do not consider the effect of these. Um, and 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 I know, I mean, like in, recently, I was trying to write an article about femtech, you know, the technology like pregnancy apps and all those things, and I was talking about how it doesn't address menopause that we are so rooted into. Um, that there are not that many apps for menopause, that mm -hmm. we are so rooted in kind of peg pregnancy and reproduction and focus so much on that because of women's fertility is considered such a priority. And the person I was submitting this to kept saying, but is it because we don't know much about menopause? And that is the problem. It's like, no, <laughs> so it's easier to do that. So I don't understand what the problem is. And I kept thinking, <laughs> How do I explain this to you that this is a problem? Well, also the problem is if if we as a society don't know enough about menopause, yeah. then that does not serve people who go through the menopause yeah, exactly. at all. But also it's so like, yeah, what's the problem? It's like the problem is half of us are going to have to live through this and it's wild. I mean, that astonishes me. And I, I think sometimes my life as a woman has been a series of of sort of stark deep end introductions to things where nobody has at any point said this might be your journey as yeah. a person and this might be the journey of your body and instead it's just like oh yeah that's what periods are oh yeah that's what pregnancy is oh yeah that's what giving birth is good luck you know <laughs> and, and i think it's so much of this relates in my mind to society as a whole like when you were talking about kind of people not understanding their history and, and things i think about how um, people are not rooted in any kind of local history or social history or industrial history anymore. And, and similarly, like with them, um, oh no, come on brain. I was halfway through a thought. I'm sorry. Um, but similarly with them, um, what was it? With menopause and not being taught about the future either. It's like, oh, oh yes, this is it. It's like how we as a society or in Britain, definitely, People don't want to think about death or aging. They don't want to think about social care. So unless they're actually dealing with it, you know, social care is not being adequately yeah. uh, legislated for or, or um, funded. And so it, it, it's very interesting that like these issues sort of seem to me to mirror the wider way that society's structured too. I hope that isn't too rangy. No, but that, that is rooted also in ageism in a society and about how we consider how older older people are of value to society and that is especially pertaining to women i think because the gender and age intersect and the intersectionality heightens that bias that i've talked about both bo before and we see numerous examples of that but menopause is just one thing which shows that our society's obsession with women's fertility and once that ends then you're of no value to society and you're over the hill and 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 
in, as you say, it's almost like you find keep finding things and you think, oh, actually, this is why. I didn't know. Okay, <laughs> right. This must be it why I'm feeling like this. Okay, I'll Google something and I'll find out. <laughs> I just, I mean, I know health and NHS staff has been brilliant and people have been under pressure, but recently I called up about something and there was like, oh yeah, just Google it and find out. I was like, I'm just asking you, why am I feeling like this? <laughs> Google it. So it's I, like we have to keep discovering things and it just comes as a surprise all the time. What's happening with our bodies? We don't, we didn't even know. Well, I have a friend who's, who's in her early 40s and she's um like starting to um try for a baby and she got really worried because she was having uh like certain symptoms that she thought must be symptoms of the menopause. Mm-hmm. And she went to the GP and the GP was like, yeah, probably. Then she read a book on fertility that and the book was like, these are just signs that you're ovulating. And she was like, right, so the exact opposite of what I've been doing. You know, and, and I feel like people can so easily be misinformed and lost and, yeah, and just not given the support that's useful to them. No, it just, and then you kind of lose time and you think, oh, I wish I'd known this 10 years mm-hmm. earlier because I could have made different choices, different. And that's why I think one of the things about the book I wanted to write about is that we think we've got all these choices on offer, even in Western countries, even if you don't talk about the countries where choice is limited and choice is, is controlled by state or whatever, even in now we think we are really progressive, we've got all this freedom, but our choices are limited by what information we have on offer and, and what we know and what we don't know. So choice is really, is such a vague, ambiguous concept when we talk about it really. And such an illusion as well, yeah. if, 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 like you say, you're not actually informed. Yeah. And can I ask, I, I've, I want to talk about two things. Firstly, I want to talk about the fact that I think the book is very poetic in places. Like, I think it's very beautifully written as well. And like, how do you balance that kind of writing, sort of writing as a writer and writing more in a more academic context or more kind of informative nonfiction context? <laughs> it's my two sides of my brain or something. I don't know. I think, um, uh, yeah, so so my previous books before that were very scientific and obviously I'm an academic. So there was that was a huge transition as well to, to find my voice and to mm. think of writing more accessibly and not in an academic way, which I still fall back on because I'm an academic. So I'll footnote everything and I <laughs> cite every single source that I come, come from. But it was really interesting because Yes, it was shifting between two things, but it gave me so much more freedom as well to to be creative and to to write in a more kind of a hybrid genre defying manner yeah. um, and and to be memoristic, but to quote all these things, which I really enjoy reading and things, but then also bring my scientific uh, perspective in it. And it, it is a shift. It was also tricky to find the balance about in each chapter about how much memoiristic stuff and how much scientific stuff and why am I transitioning from scientific perspective to memoir or vice versa? And it, how does do I still maintain that consistency so that it doesn't seem like two people have written the book, different people yeah. have written the book and all those things were a little bit tricky, but my I had a great editor as well. So that's fantastic. <laughs> 
Does scientist you ever have that moment of really having to fight over an anecdote where you are, you know, scientist <laughs> you go, this is anecdotal, and then you go, yes, but stories are also what, especially when the science hasn't been done on this, is what Jane Goodall talked about, you know, the fact that when she was quite dismissed in, in, in Cambridge University after she she first came back with all of her incredible chimpanzee research, it was, they kept going, well, this is just a story, and that's just a story, and this, and you go, well, if there's enough stories, but do you sometimes go, right, I, I need to work out how I'm justifying this anecdote, science me, work this one out yeah exactly and that's really interesting to hear about jane goodell i didn't know that so i'm going to look that up because there's always like during the editing process as well or the revision process there's always like but are you making a generalization where is the proof for that where is the evidence for that and i'm thinking but actually this is my experience or this is somebody's experience and this is something that happened and there's always like i sometimes like really get really angry it's like why do i have to justify everything you know what if somebody's not even talked about it before what if i'm trying mm-hmm. to say something that um that can become evidence later on you know and i think that is really hard because almost like we are forced to write a certain way if we fit into a certain genre so it's like if you're writing creative nonfiction or something you have more or fiction you have more freedom to write about things in a way that doesn't doesn't need evidence but if you're writing kind of even a half scientific book you have to show evidence for everything and who said it and why I said it so I'm just writing the next working on the next project and I'm finding it quite tricky again to switch back to that and saying okay I have to justify everything well, also with this top, uh, with this subject matter as well I can really see how you would feel on guard for people sort of making sexist assumptions yeah. about how women write or or whether or not women's testimony counts and that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it, there's always that. And it, there's al- also that, that am I reinforcing some of the stereotypes through my own writing? Because when I'm writing about India, for instance, or writing as an Indian woman, am I reinforcing some of those kind of tropes about Indian women or Indianness or... Indian lifestyle or Indian cities or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But so I had to really think about that, that should I not say what's the truth? Should I not talk about my experience? Because that is such a stereotype that people fall back on a lazy stereotype or should I talk about it because it's my truth and I am writing the truth in this book and, and people should trust me, readers should trust me. So that was that was difficult. But there were also things like, because obviously, um, people here don't have the same experience, it's easy for them to think, ask, to be confused about a certain experience that I had and think, actually, is this true? Are you really sure that you had this experience? And it's almost like I have to justify my own experience or my lived experience because yeah. it doesn't align with other people's experience. So there are different sides to it. I, I rambled. I don't know. No, not at all. <laughs> I'm just going to be like, that sounds so tiring <laughs> like, to have to sort of play into it all. But I was interested in, in if you've had any change in understanding in, in what at times it seems to be this kind of perspective of of the filth of of creativity in terms of actually having a child I mean, you know you write about a temple where where no women between the ages of 10 and 50 are allowed in because you never know maybe one of them will be menstruating and that will mean the whole day and you know and that's not you know that kind of I, I find it very there's a bit I, I was just looking about where you talk about you know bleeding in men is heroic hard earned through courage and combat in women bleeding is often normal monthly occurrence and it is taboo stigmatized silent and hidden and beyond that it's also that blood 
is seen as something which which sure. is going to destroy anything mm. that's sacred and 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 as, as you also write in the book you know it it it, it turns wine into vinegar it you know all of these things and i wondered how your understanding has has changed if it has of why that has existed in in so many societies for so long the kind of disgust at uh, menstruation I mean, women's bodies have always been seen as this kind of conundrum, this kind of enigma, isn't it? Because men were writing about it. And they, and if you look back into Greek, Roman antiquities, there was always this binary divide where men were the rational, reasoned people and men, women were the emotional pe- people because of their physical frailties and because men didn't understand why they were going through all these things. Why did they have the womb? Why did they have babies? Why were they having periods? all these kind of monthly cycles that they went through. And so it, it, they were kind of seen as weak and physically frail and all their emotionality was also linked to these kind of um, interlinked with the physical things that they were, they were going through. So if you look at all the stereotypes that women were um, kind of, uh, I think, uh, manipulative and women were teary and women were cowards and men were the heroic ones and men were the ones who were outgoing and having war. And, and that kind of led to this idea that men, because men didn't undergo all those things, they they were more able to be rational and reasoned and they were more able to be the one in control and in power and in the public domain because women had to stay inside and hide away all these kind of things because that's not what men were going through, obviously. So so that could be just like something we don't want to talk about and let's just hide it away because it's all so cumbersome and everything. And kind of it, it if you look through all the medieval period and, and, and even in Bible or Upanishads or all those kind of Vedic tre- writings, those ideas are then perpetuated through that. And we know science is not free from bias. So, um, so lots of scientific ideas, misconceptions emerge from that as well about how the blood of menstruating women had menotoxins in it and it could wilt flowers and all those till until 1900s, 1920s, it was going through. Could it be so cool if it could? I'd feel so powerful. <laughs> have a little poison I could collect. Or just Worst turn vinegar into wine. Ever. I would like that power. Turn vinegar into wine. <laughs> not the it's other way astonishing. Around. It's yeah. hard not to grieve a bit when you think yeah. about this from a historical yeah. perspective. Yeah, it's and 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 so it's become so deeply rooted in our society from so long, since so long, that women were kept inside and men were out doing things because they were more rational and they had they didn't show their emotion. They could tackle their emotions much more easily. They didn't undergo all these kind of things every, um, and they they didn't have the responsibility of carrying on their line of their lineage, reproducing all those kind of things. So, yeah, I think it's all interlinked in a way, isn't it? You also, I can't remember the name of the academic you talk about who wrote an article, uh, I think 30 years ago, say, where uh, about the whole narrative of becoming pregnant, that you have these very, very brave sperm who are like heroic (laughs) soldiers going through a terrible, forbidden, acidic (laughs) cave, this awful, horrible place which is filled with acid. And then there's basically just this kind of egg there going, oh, I hope someone comes to save me. (laughs) And it's lying there. Yeah, Emily Martin wrote it three, around 30 years ago, but then some other people have written about it. And then obviously, if you remember that movie that I mentioned, Look Who's Talking, which at the start of this, are these all these sperms going, oh gosh, I'm, and they're moving and the egg is just lying there passively. And I, 
And if that's not what happens, because and recent research shows that actually egg actively chooses the right sperm for it as well. Yes. And that was really like, oh, egg has autonomy and agency. We are not just like. Also, eggs are old. Time to be rescued. <laughs> like eggs are so sort of the eggs. It's the of largest, your grandchildren. It's the largest in the body and nobody ever talks about it, wow. actually. But I'm just thinking about the fact that babies are born with their eggs. If they have yeah. eggs, they're born with all their eggs. Like, yeah. hey, how, don't disrespect the egg. They've been around <laughs> for ages. They know what's going on. Wow, that's so interesting. I mean, do you feel like access to better, like being able to better access biological kind of processes will eventually lead to positive change. Yeah, I think more information and discussion and discourse about it and more awareness about it, because I wrote this and so many people have come back to me and said, I didn't actually know this. Mm -hmm. I read biology at school. I didn't actually know that and notice it ever. Mm -hmm. And I talked to many doctors and nurses and medical professionals and they were like, oh, actually, we didn't notice that the, the male anatomy is mentioned first and the female anatomy is always a subset. So it's always the perineum and the female perineum. And <laughs> so it's like, why, why does it happen? And so I think the more discussion we have and not just ignore it because I try to, I really wanted to write more about it. And I really wanted to pitch an article and say, okay, I want to write more about the effect this kind of language has on our society. And I just noticed that there wasn't that much interest in it. And so maybe we are still linked into the idea, okay, this happens, fine. I mean, it's not considered important, but I think gender language is so, so, so something so important that we need to discuss more. And I think, yes, things can change if we change these things mm -hmm. and say, actually, we need to look at all the bias that's so deeply entrenched in our textbooks, because these are the people going out in the world with all these misconceptions and then treating women and men. And if they have these ideas, then they kind of reinforces the stereotypes and gender inequality. Well, I was thinking about, you know, parenting as well. And, yeah. and and it reminds me of your book as well, which I can see behind you. I wish we knew what to say, which we should also talk about, about there are things that you have to, that you may well think you are changing in a passive way, but unless you are actively changing them, you're not. And yeah. I remember deciding with my daughter when she was born, just that on the whole, I would anthropologize anthropomorphize uh, things as she for her so yeah. the world around her was built of she like her yeah. and I was like well I assume I do that pretty much anyway like I'm a cool cool person and then um well literally I was like cool dude that's a male word cool guy that's also a male word but um I literally it's been yeah. so shocking to me to be like hey not only these books, which I thought I'd chosen for her, were largely female protagonists. How many of them are so sort of disproportionately yeah. male? And also how much when I, when I was saying, you know, look at that little bird, look at him, you know. Look at him, yeah, yeah. exactly. And having to change it and be like, look at her. And now seeing that other people are sort of like, not not annoyed, but sort of seeing that it almost rankles with other people yeah, that I'll always be yeah, like, oh, look, she's doing that about something and not saying he. And it's just that small thing. Is it many... is so deeply, you're so right. Even reading books to my children, I try to change the 
pronounce all the time, but then you get really angry because it's just changing them all the time. And yes, it mm -hmm. is so deeply rooted. We internalize these things. And I have to keep pointing to my husband. You could have said she there. You could have said <laughs> <laughs> It's really annoying person. <laughs> no, no, but it's so important too, yeah. because if I, as a woman, am doing that, yeah. it's different to him yeah. as a man doing that. Yeah. It, it, it's important for... Yeah. you know everyone to be doing it even people who are not as personally affected by those things no it's so it's so important and i we recently got a book for them called gender swapped fairy tales huh. and it's really cool because um suddenly all these stories you think oh my god i see them in a different light now because once you sort the pronouns and the gender it just completely switches your perspective on it and they mm -hmm. loved it and yeah we've been reading it to them we read the whole thing and they really so now they keep saying, oh, but uh, that was a boy who had hair in the tower. That wasn't a girl. What are they showing you? wrong. Like, <laughs> but there's so many of these. I couldn't name them. Um, they they just all interlinked somehow. Lots of it didn't even make it into the book in the end. But I really enjoyed reading about Sophie Lewis and her views on surrogacy. I, I, heard, I heard a talk recently and I read about Kate Clanchy's work in menstruation and what she talks about. And that's really fascinating as well. And all the work around that's been done around gender language is really interesting as well. Um, unfortunately, there's an, um, and also actually it was really interesting to read about the whole notion of natural childbirth and how much of the male midwives have perpetuated this notion that women have to feel pain to be real mothers. And it was um, a very interesting name, Grantly Decreed, who I really enjoyed reading. So <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there's got to be some sort of nominative determinism there, but I can't work it out. <laughs> Wow, gosh, what yeah, I, I oh, can't God, bear this. Well, I just can't. Some of this stuff is very painful to to hear and to to think about, you know, the idea that men got to say to women that unless you're feeling excruciating pain, you're not doing it right. And also for me, like having had like, having loved hypnobirthing and it all being about trying to find ways to get yourself out of like that fearful, painful space and like, that could have been available all that time, you know? It, oh, is is yeah, that I mean, it's really fascinating because I, even when writing the book and after I'd written the book, I found out that so many women carry this guilt of giving birth by C-section and that it's considered mm. less than natural delivery. And I had not even ever considered that because I think in India still it's C-section is something that because it's costly, more expensive, it's considered that women of like upper or middle class can afford it. And so it's considered one of those kind of plush things that, that you can go and do it. And there's no like stigma associated with it that you haven't, I mean, as far as I know, that you had a child by C-section. So you're less of a mother or anything because it's more like considered a privilege or a certain class of society. So, so it assigns status to a person, I suppose. And, and here, I was just shocked that so many women carry this guilt that but oh, also, I was less of a mother. I couldn't give birth naturally. And I just this hate this natural birth thing, really. Yeah. The people I know who've had C-sections largely also went through a 40-hour labour as well, and they still were feeling guilt and pressure. Oh. But yeah, on top of that, I, I can't believe that people who have then been through a major operation are made to feel like they've not done yeah. enough. Yeah, <laughs> they've exactly. been through a major operation. <laughs> stomach abdomen cut and 
I remember from my own, I mean, it, the recovery process was enormous. And of course, my childhood, the first one was really difficult. I was on bed for two months and then wow. I had a C-section and then I lost five units of blood. So I was back in there and, wow. and all those things were happening. So it's all tied up with that. But I mean, I don't know how women can be made to feel guilty even after they've given birth that this wasn't the proper way of doing it. It's just just shows how ridiculous this whole thing is mm. oh, there was this... a picture who was it was up today was put up on social media of i don't know where it's from but she's a, a cyclist who's won loads and loads of medals and someone put it up because also the in in the picture you can really clearly see her c-section scar and it's really? kind of you know yeah i can't remember who, who it was but it, it just went up uh um i'll say just say because it because this isn't going out today look back to the first of july social media see what you uh um noticed there and and you'll find a picture of her but yeah she was cyclist yeah. and it was just a lot of people commenting on what oh, a rarity it is to, to to see that yeah, yeah, we don't see that. We even hide that away as kind of some kind of shameful thing. We should be like a badge of honor or something. Like I went through this and you know, my body could do that. And mm-hmm. no matter how you give birth, first of all, birth is valorized, which I think is like put on a pedestal. And uh, this whole polarization that if you don't give birth, you're not a true mother or something like that. That then in that is a hierarchy as well. Like, mm-hmm. come on, give me a break. Do you, um, I was, oh, sorry, Josie. No, I think it's it's very, um, again, like the sort of images of womanhood and motherhood that have reduced us to, you have to tick these very specific mm. boxes or you haven't proved yourself are so damaging. But I think that in societies where women's choices were so limited, I felt like they must have clung to those as mm. things that they could do. And, and I think, yeah, it's like, it's so important and so wonderful that we can take that off a future i hope future generations and, and broaden things out so much like i, I just mean, think I about so but we're still talking about girls being forced to wear modesty shorts in school mm. after a certain age and if you're wearing dresses you can't um yeah play on in a certain way otherwise you have to wear shorts otherwise i mean we're still blaming girls for mm. how their bodies are seen by other people um, so yes, I hope that things change for, but I sometimes worry about my children that how do I bring them up? Because I want to tell them your body's your own and you're empowered and all that. And the moment they're growing a bit and I have to then tell them, oh, actually you can't go out wearing that because somebody might mm. treat you in a different way. And so I'm giving them mixed messages, but what do you do kind of a thing? I think that's, so we have to change so society as a whole not just think about how we're bringing up our girls and Mm -hmm. and empowering them because that is so important to do i think um before we go i'd love to ask you a little bit about what you've read recently that you've really enjoyed um and it doesn't have to be relating to the topic of your book but i mean it can be if you like but like yeah what have you been reading recently that you've really enjoyed and that's (laughs) affected you um so when I write work on a project, I get quite consumed by it. And I, so I just read things related to it because anything else I read, I find like, oh, okay, I'm wasting my time. But <laughs> I read, um, let me think about, I read Vivian Gornick, who I really enjoy. So Vivian Gornick writes about on writing, about writing. And there's a book where she, what is it called? Well, again, I'm doing that thing. About, <laughs> oh, I have it here. I I'm going to write it down. Um, 
it's called Situation and the Story, which I'd been reading, which I found really interesting because she writes about her personal essays and memoirs, but she writes it in such a beautiful way. And there's another one of hers, which I read recently, which is this one, which is Fierce Attachments. Oh, no, oh, this is not Fierce Attachment. This is um, Approaching Eye Level. Um, she's written fierce attachments as well, but this is approaching eye level, which is another kind of series of essays. It's her, her writing is just really fresh and very honest, I feel. Um, I read a book soon after I'd written Motherhood called Wave uh, by Sonali, um, what's her name, Deraniagla, something like that, how you pronounce it. It's very harrowing. It's It's just shocking. And it's just like, twisted my insights completely. I cried after reading it because it's a it's a count of tsunami where she loses all her family and two small children. And, and but it's written with such rawness that yeah. I don't know how she wrote it. Um, that must have been writing, that must have been really, really terrible. But I mean, I've got a whole lot of things here. <laughs> so yeah, lots of books that I dip in and out of. Um, um, I, I, I do dip in and out of books. I mm. find it difficult at the moment to read through the whole things. Well, especially if you're in the middle of researching something else, it must feel like this is great that this isn't the meal I'm eating. Yeah. This isn't what I'm eating. I shouldn't be doing it. Um, oh, it's really lovely to talk to you again. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's so oh, nice please just come back all the time. <laughs> come back yeah. all the time. I have so much fun. Thank you. And I'm sorry to keep being like, and I've had an experience too. But I think this this book is so good because I feel like it it's it's empowering and it makes you feel better about. You have had an experience too, as well. Well, I have. You're had allowed to. That's and right. the stuff that you did, if we'd had Melvin Bragg instead of you, he'd never have been able to say he wouldn't have been able to do a lot That's of that true. stuff. That's true. So I'm glad <laughs> that I'm when sure he, he got down. Something though. <laughs> Well, we got down to the final two, you know, whatever it was, 12 years ago, and it was Josie or Melvin, and I don't know what it was. I don't know what I saw in you, Josie, but I thought, I'm going to go with this young Josie rather than old Melvin Bragg. Um, He's never been a privilege. <laughs> but no, I, I hope people find readers, and I, I'm so, so pleased to hear it's resonated, and I'm so pleased that you read it, Robin, as well, because men often don't read books written by women, uh, as, as we hear again and again. But also, I think it's really nice to hear of your experiences, um, Josie, because I think I hope that readers find themselves in the spaces between the sentences and the words and that in some ways, within my specific experience and all the discussion and discourse around it, it resonates with people and they can mm -hmm. say, oh, actually, I felt like this or and I'm glad it was empowering because I think. I worried quite a lot, but it was a, like a depressing book when I was writing it. I kept asking my editor, am I being too moony? Am I being too windy about No, but <laughs> hearing other people talk about difficult things and hearing other people talk about unjust things is so important as well because it's it, it makes you feel like you're not alone and it makes yeah. you feel like the justice is out there and it is yeah. understood even if it isn't arrived. You know? Yeah, I hope so. I, and somebody said that this book was ultimately about love, which made me mm. feel really nice about it. <laughs> no, I thought it was fantastic, and it was. And we mentioned yeah. before as well that other thing as well about those books, which I don't, I don't, I don't think it is Moni at all. I, I think it, yeah. it really <laughs> takes me into a I mean, world of a lot of things that I don't know very much about. I really don't think just, it's Moni. I think no. that's such like sexist like of course women talking about difficult things that are unfair is moaning like how dare they <laughs> you know 
Um, well, we mentioned at the beginning Laura Bates, you know, and I know that Laura got some of the stuff because when she wrote Men Who Hate Women, uh, people would go, oh, so all men hate women. No, 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 read what the title says. Men who? Who, <laughs> yeah. And it's, uh, and I would, so I recommend both, uh, well, some of us call it Otherhood, others of us call it Motherhood. Motherhood, otherhood. Motherhood, otherhood. I'd forgotten, Josie. Yeah, well, I, I jumped in. I was like, ago. I'll take that it. was an hour ago. <laughs> I didn't ago. write it. <laughs> um, oh, listen, I'm so sorry because I'm going to have to go. Yeah, you I go. Interview someone about out. adventure playgrounds at 4 p.m., which is very exciting to me. Hey, um, I'm not in on that interview as well. I do you love like swings and ropes and getting all caught in the nets and stuff. Oh, man, you get all the. Oh, I'm really annoyed. And so, yeah, uh, Motherhood is out now. And uh, also, I was just going to mention, we're talking about writers who've made us cry. A.L. Kennedy, who wrote many great books, including The Little Snake, which I found particularly beautiful, mm. is on uh, a very recent edition of Tips for Existence. So, if any of you want to go, and uh, listen to that. Um, thank book, you. Uh, is out. We are attempting to survive our time. Her short stories, which is fantastic. In fact, there's a book shambles going a while back as well, where we talked to uh, um, Al Kendi about that. Thank you very much, everyone, for joining us. Thank you very much, everyone who supports us via Patreon. Thank you very much to our producer Trent. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, Bye. thanks so much for coming on. Bye. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Motherhood is out now. Check out your local independent bookshop for a copy of that or one of the other larger online bookstores if you prefer to get your books that way. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is the place to go to support us and get extended editions of this episode and all the other episodes of Book Shambles. Back next week with another new episode. Have a great week and we'll see you then. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. 